All right. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And we'll read right through the end of the chapter, starting in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength, and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Luke chapter 3. We dealt with part of the story several weeks ago. And I would like to pick that story up again and deal with some further details there. Luke chapter 3. And if you have a Bible, please read along with me as we examine the scriptures and then examine them a little more closely. First three verses there read, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother tetrarch Philip of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. Now, all those big names are there to help you put that place or put those, that story in its political and its geographical context. During this time, a time chosen by God, the word of God, the Bible says, came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert. He went into all the country 
around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then I want you to please uh, look ahead to verse 15. The intervening verses talk about John, John, part of John's message. Verse 15 uh, says, The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. Now, the word Christ, Christos, from the Greek is the same word as Mashiach or Messiah in the Hebrew. Both of those words mean anointed. It's not Christ, it's not Jesus' last name. Uh, it's his title, the anointed one, uh, the Messiah. They were wondering if John might possibly be the Christ, the Mashiach, the Messiah for whom they were waiting. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. <coughs> and with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Now, if you go back with me to the beginning of time when God created Adam and Eve, you know the scenario. Adam was a perfect human being without sin. And God said to him and to Eve as well, he said, you can eat from any tree of the garden, in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now fast forward sometime. Try this today. Let's say God put you and I in a garden. We're sinful human beings. Sin is part of our makeup. And when God said that to Adam, there's no record of God or of Adam um, arguing back with God about that particular tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But fast forward to today, and so God puts you in a garden, or me, uh, not you, you wouldn't be like this, but I probably would be, um, puts me in a garden and says, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat of it, for in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. My response would probably be, we have one of those, where is it? You see, there's, there's this innate tendency within us when God says don't, uh, we ask why not, and, and I do. And the reality is that people, you and me, are inherently sinful and rebellious. And it's a constant struggle of human life as to who gets to rule, who gets to say what goes, who runs your life and mine. Now, if I were to ask in a church who runs your life, you would probably give me the correct Sunday school answer and say, Jesus. But the reality is, if we were to, to conduct an investigation into your life, if we were to hire someone to investigate the minute details of your life, 
and, and to come up to answer the question, who runs this person's life? What do you think the answer might be? I know that if someone were to examine my life real closely, yeah, there are times that I submit to Jesus and he runs my life, but there are probably lots of times that I make my own decisions. Now, we've talked a little bit uh, this morning, and, and we do in the past, and we will continue to do so in the future. Our vision as Emmanuel Baptist Church is to influence people to maturity in Christ. Now, that's not talking about the person that's sitting beside you. I'm talking to you, and I'm pointing your finger at you. And when I do that, there are three fingers pointing back at myself to influence people to maturity in Jesus Christ. And we need to ask ourselves the question, well, how will we know when we get there? What does it look like? How can we tell if someone is mature in Jesus Christ or is this just some lofty, abstract, ideological concept that we can play with, you know? What does it look like for someone to be mature in Christ if we're going to create disciples, if we're going to influence people to maturity in Christ, how will we know when we get there? Let's say you start driving in Nippon, and you say, well, I'm going to go somewhere. Well, where are you going? Well, I don't know. Well, then how will you know when you get there? If you say, I'm going to Vancouver, you know it's going to take 20 hours of driving if you don't run into any problems. If you want to go to Denver, it's going to take 20 hours of driving. Calgary is nine hours. Edmonton is eight. Winnipeg is eight. And I have no idea how far Ontario is away because I've never been there other than flying in an airplane. I don't know what it would take to drive to New York. I don't know what it would take to drive to Florida. But I've driven to Denver. I know how long it takes. I've driven to Vancouver. I know how long it takes. And if I set out to go to Denver, I know when I get there. But if I don't know where I'm going, and so we have to decide what's it going to look like for someone to be mature in Jesus Christ. And I think what we're talking about today is going to be part of that process. I think someone who is, who is mature in Jesus, in that person's life, Jesus controls. Jesus is in control of the mature Christian's life. Now, I don't think any of us are fully going to make that this side of eternity, but we can certainly work in that direction. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what was going on in John's day. You know his story, most of you do. He was the son of, of an older couple. The Bible says they were well along in years and they didn't have any children. His dad was Zachariah. His mom was Elizabeth. They were cousins to Jesus. And so one, Zachariah was a priest and one day he's serving in the temple and, and, and the angel, an angel appears to Zachariah and says, you're going to have uh, a son and you're going to call his name John. And he's going to have a specific mission. Um, he will, many of the people of Israel, will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so John had been given this mission before he was born. And other than the day of his birth, we don't know a whole lot about him. And all of a sudden, in Luke chapter 3 and in some of the other Gospels, he pops up on the pages of our Bible, and the Bible, uh, you know, Luke says he came out of the wilderness. Uh, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert, and he went into all the country uh, around the Jordan. Now, many scholars assume that John had been spent some time with a, a group of people who lived an ascetic lifestyle. They were called the Essenes. They were students of the Word of God. They lived on the shores of the Dead Sea in a community called Qumran. They think that John somehow had a lot of influence from those people if he wasn't one of them. But the reality is that John pops onto the scene with this radical message, and his message was basically uh, this. Uh, and these are words that I heard in the last couple of days, but the message was basically show, don't tell. In other words, if you're going to be a follower of God, make it show. Don't talk about it. Show, don't tell. He said, if you're guilty of doing this particular thing, stop doing it. His, his baptism was a baptism of forgiveness for the repentance of sin. To repent means to turn around, to stop what you're doing and to start doing something else. But he had a unique opportunity because what we read in Scripture here in, in verse um, 15 was that people were waiting expectantly and all were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. Now he could have said, yeah, I probably am. Because John was doing something that no one had done before. He had an opportunity. But John knew what his reality was and he said, one more powerful than I will come. He said, I'm not that person. He said, someone is coming after me who is going to be more powerful or greater than I am. He was a man of courage. The Bible says he rebuked Herod the Tetrarch. Herod was the big cheese in those days in the area where John was working. Herod was a nuts man. And what had happened was that, that Herod kind of fell in love with his brother Philip's wife and and asked her to marry him, and so she did. She was also his niece, by the way. And so they got married, and, and John went to Herod and waved his finger under his nose and said, what you did, dude, is out of line. And, and when you confront someone who is bigger and stronger than you are, you usually pay the price for it. And so John's promising career got shut up, shut down, rather, and he wound up in prison, and you know the rest of the story, how this woman's daughter came along and uh, had John's head taken off. So that was his reward. But somewhere in between that, now, now Luke condenses this, but somewhere in between that there is another event that's happening, and we want to take a look at that, and you'll find it in John chapter 3. Here's the story. After Jesus came to John to be baptized, Jesus went out and did some baptizing himself, and people began to recognize that Jesus was the greater one than John, and so people were flocking to Jesus. 
to be baptized instead of the John. And John's ministry was going downhill. It's kind of like the Alliance Church and the Baptist Church, you know. Why do people go choose to go to the Alliance Church instead of Emmanuel? When a new family comes to town, my daughter says, you know, we got these new people coming to, to, to the Alliance Church. And, well, what's wrong with the Baptists? You know, like, come on, like, come over here. Anyways, that's a freebie. So the Bible says that a certain Jew or certain Jews came to John and said to him, Rabbi, your teacher, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, this is in John chapter 3 and uh, verse 20-something, 20 25-26, uh, came, came to John, the one you testified about, Jesus, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, why do you think they told John that? Why did John need to know that? It's like, you know, when your wife or husband is snoring, and he or she wakes you up and says, you're snoring, like, why do I need to know that? Now, if you want me to roll over or something, well, then tell me to roll over. Like, like you know, if you wake me up in the middle of the night and tell me I'm snoring, like, like okay, what's the point here? Like, why do I need to know this? And Kathy doesn't do that anymore, by the way. We solved that a long time ago, so... She just, she just very gently tickles me, and I know what that means. So. But, you know, so these guys came to John to pick a fight, basically is what they wanted. They, they were egging him on. And, and, and they were looking for a fight. They wanted to see a scrap between John and Jesus to see John get all riled up and then probably tell him, see, you're not so good after all. You're no better than the rest of us. So, but look at John's answer. Well, let's not go there yet. Let's talk a little bit about people. You and I have within each of us this desperate need for self-worth. And the people that came to John wanted to threaten his need for self-worth. When that need for self-worth disappears or when our, our self-worth is taken away from us, and we feel like we're no longer worthwhile or significant, then we begin to think about things like suicide. You see, why do people bully other people? Because it gives the bullies a sense of power. And, and bullying is a shortcut to a sense of self-worth. It gives people who are bullies, it gives them a sense of power. It's the quickest way. It's like getting, getting addicted to crack. Like getting addicted to drugs, it's the shortest way to a high. It's the shortest way to a euphoria. Bullying gives you a sense of self-worth or significance. And the destruction of self-worth leads to despair, depression, and suicide. Now, the reality is that all my needs for self-worth can be met and are met in my relationship with Jesus and whatever he chooses to provide, but you and I tend to take shortcuts for that. You see, if God provides us with a certain means, we like to take shortcuts because God's way usually takes longer and it's usually harder. And so we look for a shortcut. We look for a quick fix. Now, John could have looked for that. People said to him, are you the Messiah? 
you know, could you possibly be the one? And probably John could have gathered uh, a whole bunch of people around him and, and gone off and formed this little cult or this little church or this little group or whatever. They would have been disillusioned sooner or later, and John would have been busted in his lie. But it's a temptation. And so the guys came to him again and said, you know, the one that you baptized, the one you were talking about, um, you know, like, like he's kind of taken over, dude. What happened to you? Trying to pick a fight. And John's answer starts back in Luke 3. He said, one more powerful than I will come. And he was talking about Jesus. And Jesus is our creator. He is our ruler. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. He's not just a suffering servant. He's not just a great teacher, a compassionate friend, or a dying savior. He is conqueror, king, ruler, and judge. And the reality is, his work was to redeem you and me. And the word redeem means to buy. He purchased us with his own blood. He paid the price for us. If he paid the price for us, he owns us. If you let Jesus pay the price for your sins, Jesus owns you. If you have surrendered your life to him, he is your ruler. And then if he owns me, if he is my ruler, then he has the right to tell me what to do. Maggie, please run that video for me. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's 
He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him. For yet he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. name and accept my privilege as a Christian, I must also wear my responsibility to him. So John said in chapter 3, verse 30 of the book of John, he must become greater and I must become less. And if I am to grow in him, this becoming mature in Christ involves a process of connecting with Jesus and his people. It involves a process of growing in him and involves a process of serving him and you can't divorce one of those three from any of the others. But if you refuse to grow and if you refuse to take the steps to grow, you will never become mature in him. And so for me, as a Christian, for you as a Christian, he must become greater. And that starts in the privacy of my own life, in the secret places of my own life that no one, not even my wife, knows about. Jesus must become greater and I must become less. And every part of my life needs to be submitted to his scrutiny and to his lordship. It starts in the privacy of my own home, be it within the walls of my own house that no one knows about except my own spouse and my children. And so in my marriage as a husband or as a wife, do I love my wife as he loves the church? Do I sacrifice myself on her behalf? Do I sacrifice my interests, my desires, my, my goals, everything on behalf of my wife. That's what it means to love my wife as Christ loved the church. She comes first. If I am, if he is to become greater and I am to become less as a husband, I need to learn to serve, to submit myself, to, to sacrifice myself on behalf of my wife. If you're a wife this morning, if he is going to become greater and you are to become less, do you respect your husband? Do you honor him as Christ honors his, those who are over him as a parent? Do I model the parenthood of God to my children? 
Even as an adult, I struggle with that. Do I model how God parents me even now? Do I parent my children like that? As a child or teenager, do I model the obedience and respect for my parent that Christ has for his father? And what if my spouse or my parent or my boss or my superior is not respectable or honorable? Someone else's failure does not entitle my own disobedience. My responsibility is to Christ. He must become greater. I must become less. And so in the world in which I live, the way that I drive in Nipawin, the way that I conduct myself on the streets of this community, the way that I conduct myself in my own home, in my own yard, with my own neighbors, with my own wife, with my own family and children, within my church, within the stores, within the restaurant, where I work, within where I play. Is Christ becoming greater in my life? Do I model Jesus Christ when someone trips me in hockey? I hope so. If someone squeezes me, does Jesus come out or does the pus and poison of my own selfishness comes out? When someone rubs me the wrong way, what shows up? See, he must become greater and I must become less. Therefore, his priorities must become mine. His interest must trump my own interest. His principle must trump those of the world in which I live. And his word has the final say in the things which I think and do. And so I need to place my rights and my needs on this altar and say, Lord, I am willing to put this on the altar so that you can become greater and I can become less. And I put them there and two seconds later I go right back there. But I want to hang on to this one. You see, there's a cost involved. For John the Baptist, it cost him his freedom. It cost John the Baptist his future. It cost John the Baptist his ministry. It cost John the Baptist his position. It cost John the Baptist his rightful place. And ultimately, it cost John the Baptist his life. For us, it means that our freedom, our rights, our position, our self-worth, and ultimately self itself needs to be put on the altar. He must become greater and I must become less. And if I am going to go through this process of becoming mature in Christ, if I am going through this process of growing, I need to come to that decision as John did that he must become greater and I must become less. Now that's a one-time decision that involves many other little decisions somewhere down the road. And even these past few days again, we were asked to make a public commitment to Jesus, a public commitment to his lordship. Now, I don't often do this in Emmanuel Baptist Church, but I'm going to ask you in just a couple of minutes, will you make that commitment? Will you echo the words of John the Baptist? recognizing that it's going to cost you, recognizing that 
When Jesus becomes greater, you become less. You may have to let go of some things. But I can also tell you that it is the best decision that you will ever make on your life. It is hard. There will be hard times. You, it is absolutely humiliating at times. You see, we like to take shortcuts. When God asks us to do something, it's usually difficult and it usually takes time. In the long run, the results are better, but we like to take shortcuts. But I'm asking you this morning, will you echo the words of John and say, as part of my maturing process, I recognize that Jesus must become greater and I must become less and I am willing to submit my life to whatever he has for me, whatever decisions he needs to make in my life, I am willing to submit to that so that he might become greater and I would become less. And if that's, you're willing to make that commitment this morning, I'm asking you to stand, to just get up where you are and to say, yes, Lord Jesus, I am willing to pay that cost. I don't care what it costs. I don't care what it's going to take, Lord, but I want to become more mature in you. And Lord Jesus, you must become greater. I must become less. Let's pray together. And I'm standing here with you, no better than any of the rest of you. Father, you see us standing before you. And Lord, we... We echo the words of John the Baptist that he must become greater and I must become less. And Lord, we recognize there is a price involved. We're going to have to sacrifice some of our, our rights and ideals and, and put things on the altar. And, and I, I know at times we take them off again, but Lord, ultimately, ultimately we know that that's the absolute best that we can ever do. Oh, Father, grant us peace and grant us courage to take the steps that are necessary regardless of the, of the costs that are involved. May he become greater and we become less. In Jesus' name we pray.